Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. This is our Australia Day special, so happy Australia Day to everyone listening. I hope that you guys enjoy a great barbecue with your family and friends and uh, whatever else you do to celebrate Australia Day. I know there are a couple of events being put on by uh, the British Australian community and the Libertarian Party in collaboration, so good luck to those guys. We'd like to see uh, more conservative uh, groups getting together for Australia Day. But um, however you choose to celebrate, I hope that it's a good one. This week, we have, uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew. And I also have a very special guest who is joining us for the first time, Virtual Wilson. He is the former chief economist at the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. He is also an expert in a number of topics ranging from energy to immigration to cancel culture to um, anything in between, really. Um, and it's a great pleasure to have him join us. How are you guys going? Uh, hanging in there, uh, John and Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here and happy Australia Day, uh, particularly to uh, Bradford Bandushi. I hope no one's doing the shopping at uh, Woolworths, incidentally. Uh, in terms of my background, economics and law from uh, the Australian National University, went over to the States and did a master's degree in economics at Johns Hopkins University during the uh, the Trump era, so that was interesting, and spent some time writing for think tanks there. Uh, worked for the uh, Chamber of Commerce and Industry as the Chief Economist, started my career at the Department of Treasury in the Domestic Economy Division, which is basically uh, macro and forecasting. I've worked in uh, financial market markets in the energy sector down in Victoria, and um, sort of moving across to do other things at this point, because... Uh, yeah, you, you, you guys will talk about this later, but the most important thing at the moment is to be uncancelable. And the most uh, most effective way of being uncancelable is running your own business, working for yourself, being self-employed, because otherwise it's, uh, it, it's very hard to own your own opinions these days. And it's also a great way to help the movement by self-employing and becoming um, uh, able to have an expendable income that you can donate to whatever group you might choose or... Um, organization. Um, ideally, well, ideally, the National yeah, Observer, obviously. Ideally, the National Observer, of course. But um, if you want to give to any one of your choice, that's okay. I support it. Um, so, Virtue, uh, you're definitely one of our most accomplished guests we've had on so far. Um, I wanted to get your story of how uh, you got started in politics right up until today. Um, so, if you would like to jump into that, go ahead. Well, I suppose reluctantly, because um, I, I was uh, working as an economist at the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and at the time we were uh, running a national campaign on energy policy, looking at re- rationalising the renewable energy target. So the first thing Abbott did once he got into office was repeal the carbon tax, and thank goodness he did. Uh, the Chamber was one of the key bodies in Canberra that locked in behind Abbott, to help him make the case to abolish the carbon tax. And I suppose if we hadn't done that, he probably would have lost that party room ballot to uh, either Malcolm Turnbull or Joe Hockey. So the chamber at the time had quite a prominent uh, leadership role in relation to energy policy. Uh, I put together a coalition of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the Minerals Council of Australia and the Business Council of Australia and we commissioned a six-figure modelling report from Deloitte Access Economics doing some uh, 
analysis of the renewable energy target, which is still in place, and uh, basically, basically found all the things we uh, and every other sensible economist in the country expected it to find that it increased energy prices, led to uh, a huge uh, distortion of capital in the uh, electricity sector, uh, which in turn led led to a let net loss of uh, $28 billion across the economy. But the uh, most amazing thing about um, the renewable, renewable energy target is just its corporate welfare on steroids. So I had a look at some of the modeling that was done by the uh, review, which was conducted by uh, Dick Warburton, the Warburton Review. And from 2014 to 2030, uh, these companies who uh, received the renewable energy credit, which is the subsidy paid under the, the RET, it was uh, it was $38 billion in total over that 16-year period. It was, just, it was huge. No one was mentioning it. And I, 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 I put it in press release, released it publicly, stuck my name on it, and uh, the Canberra Press Gallery just didn't care. So that's kind of what you're up against in Canberra. If they don't want to report it, they won't report it. And uh, it's, it was difficult to get any sort of uh, high-quality analysis done in the, um, the energy space at all. And, and it, it still is. I'm, I'm not seeing it from... Um, the business groups, you're not seeing it from the think tanks. And you just, you realize, particularly when you've been in the States and somewhere like Washington, just how sleepy Australian politics is, but also how impoverished the debate is and how uh, how mendacious the, the Canberra Press Gallery are. They, they really are a public menace. I've uh, written articles about this for The Spectator and, the, and Quadrant. So, um, you kind of look at Australia, you kind of despair at the moment. So one advantage for me of getting on track to being self-employed and running my own business is um, I, I can be outspoken on issues I think are important. And uh, I think the key issue at the moment is some honesty about uh, immigration and the impact that's having on house prices and housing affordability and rents. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely detrimental, one of the biggest issues of our time, and it's been slept on for so long, um, as it has been throughout uh, probably the last 50 years. Immigration has consistently been uh, opposed by the general public, usually uh, majorities in polls asking whether immigration restrictions should be implemented um, came up saying, yes, we should, or uh, they were opposed to higher rates. And yet, um, it's testament to just how uh, contrary to the Australian interest the media gallery is, like you're saying, that they simply just don't report on it. Um, and acting as the great filter that they are, it's almost as if uh, they the issue didn't exist at all in the minds of many. Um, so, uh, what what does some of your research reveal about the uh, problems involved in immigration? Sure. Well, I mean my key issue with uh, immigration is just a dishonesty about its impact on house prices people will pretend that it's not an issue at all and that's just completely completely at odds with the economic literature so i think there's a great piece by a guy called john mccauley in the spectator it was published 2019 but i've looked at the uh i've looked at the academic literature i've done some estimates of my own i've run this past some friends and it looks like 
the uh, long-run elasticity of house price growth with respect to population growth is around two. So that basically means if the population increases by 1%, house prices will increase by 2%. So what you can do with an insight like that is you can go back and say, look, if, if we'd set net overseas migration to about uh, zero 25 years ago, that has a, and if you look at the impact that has on population, you can translate that through to house prices. So it turns out if you'd done that, house prices would be about 40% lower than they are now. And, and it's a vicious cycle as well, because once the house prices go up and affordability uh, goes down, people stop having families, which then allows the, uh, the political class to say, look, we don't have enough people being born. We need to bring in more immigrants. And uh, as always, they overdo it. And we constantly are stuck in this spiral downwards of, um, of more and more immigration justified by the immigration itself. Well, that's, that's, that's the ultimate tragedy of it. I mean, to, to know that people who want to start a family are deferring having kids because they can't get settled in a house because they have to save up, uh, save for 10 years to get a deposit, it's just, uh, you're, it, it, it's, at a, it's really at a crisis point and the lack of honesty is what got us here. So I suppose the, the view in the corporate world is you, you can't, critique immigration because they'll call you all sorts of unpleasant names which uh, have no sort of um, no no basis in fact so it's just been so difficult to discuss immigration uh, at all that no one does and it's like it's become increasingly like that for a range of different issues so whether it's uh, gender or en energy policies just a complete dearth of public conversation so the uh being someone with a economics background being someone who's familiar with the literature and having been cancelled already well my view is um I, I i can broach these issues and it's uh i think it's in the public interest i do so and you, you try and uh, you try and tease out a response from some of these think tank people who and ironically, Peter Chulup at the Center for Independent Studies, he'll talk endlessly about the supply side. And sure, there are issues on the supply side that uh, could be addressed. But uh, try and get him to acknowledge the basic reality that uh, immigration leads to an increase in house prices and uh, lower affordability. And just um, he'll, he'll clam up. It just, it's completely... I think he knows he can't mention it because the CIS these days just looks like and operates as a uh, uh, corporate shop front. It, it, it commits a cardinal sin of a think tank of being bo boring and effectively just paid off. And it all really has its basis in ideology. Um, this is something that Graham Campbell, an MP for uh, Western Australia's biggest electorate, Kalgoorlie, he, he wrote this, I think, in the 90s. He was talking about how um, it's really driven by the multicultural ideology that, uh, that all of this immigration is justified by. First, they had to change the minds of Australians or at least uh, make it so that those who disagree with uh, the current rate of immigration or the current character of the immigration uh, were scared off and that those who would wish to oppose them had the moral up high ground to go against those who oppose immigration 
And after that was solidified within the culture and within the institutions and the highest levels of business and government, then uh, then came the unlimited waves and the record highs that we've seen recently under Albanese and even his, his, uh, his lowered rate, which is ridiculously high. Um, so it all stems from, in my mind at least, it all stems from an ideological uh, weakness within uh, conservative and right-wing Australians um, for so long who have been timid, especially in the major parties, to put their foot down and actually oppose this. Um, is this how you see it, Virtual and Matthew? What do you guys think? Yeah, I think that's... Uh... I think the dynamic is it's, um, it's, it's always been driven by the press and the corporates have this view that a big Australia is uh, good because it'll lead to, to growth and they're always talking about skill shortages and I don't know that the skill shortage list is particularly well put together. Uh, there always seems to be perennial uh, shortages and some of these uh, shortages just look weird. So a migration agent... Yeah, is it true? Yeah, is that correct? I saw that on X, but I didn't confirm it myself. Is migration agent supposedly a, a job that's in shortage at the moment? Yeah, as far as, far as, uh, as, far as I can tell, I mean, it's uh, if anyone can jump online and go through it and have a chuckle about some of these uh, supposed shortages. I mean, I, I, I had a friend who's a chef, and chefs are always on the um, skill shortages list and so his, yeah. his wages just kept getting bit down by uh new migrants who'd um add to the uh, already or add to the supply in the industry i mean there's there's one way to deal with skill shortages and that's to offer people higher wages and and train them to do the jobs and that's what um it's really the left as well that's failed in that um for so long the unions and the left at least in its founding opposed mass immigration and um, and non-assimilable uh, immigration as well for these very reasons in that it drives down the wages of the native population, that being Australians, Anglo-Celtic European Australians, and um, it does so in the interests of, um, of those who don't live here yet. They're the new Australians. They As soon as they step off uh, the plane, they get the piece of paper, and now they're the Australians, and everything uh, is justified in their interest rather than of the native population. Well, it, I mean, it's, it is hard to show a direct uh, relationship in, in aggregate between immigration and wages, but um, certainly uh, there are issues in sub-markets. So chefs, for instance, IT professionals. But the, uh, the, I mean, the real sleeper argument with immigration is, uh, to my mind, it's, uh, it's a question of institutional economics. And what I mean by that is it's the consensus within the economics profession is wealthy countries are rich because they have high quality institutions of government and poor countries are poor because they have poor quality institutions of government. So that's kind of a given. And the next question becomes, well, where do these institutions come from and how do you sustain them? And it turns out that they have, they have deep roots in our political culture and the broader culture as well. So I've, um, I've thrown up some slides on this on Twitter for your audience to check out. It's under the highlights. And I'll link it in the description of this episode. Yeah, appreciate that. It's a great book by um, Garrett Jones called The uh, Culture. I think it's a 
the culture transplant and a great long essay as well by Garrett Jones. Garrett Jones is a professor at George Mason University and George Mason University is a big uh, free market university in the States. They've got the Mercatus think tank attached to it. So in that essay, he looks at what he calls the, um, the deep roots literature and he asks, well, do immigrants import their economic destiny? And it's quite profound because if, if, if immigrants bring with them uh, political pathologies, say radical Islam, for instance, I mean, that, that's an obvious issue that kind of goes beyond uh, institutions per se. But uh, the question is, what sort of uh, impact does mass immigration have on our institutions of government if it changes the political culture of the country and if it changes the actual uh, culture proper of a country. And no one's really talking about this. Uh, Jason Richwine in the States, who used to be at Heritage, uh, but got fired because of his research with Charles Murray and IQ. He's, um, he's had a few articles recently. So this is really the cutting edge of the argument around immigration. I think it's really the silver bullet as well, because if we're risking through our immigration program, a change in the political culture that undermines our first world institutions of government, then effectively we're, we're undermining our first world living standards as well. And look at- just Yeah, it's a like, common saying that demographics are destiny. And I think uh, every example from history and all the data really bears this out that uh, it's the soil, the Australian soil, the British soil, the American soil is not magic. You don't step onto it and suddenly uh, become an American. You you can move from another country. And uh, I think anyone that has interacted with even second gen, first gen uh, immigrants uh, will be able to attest to it. They never really do within their lifetime feel as though they are Australian. They never become part of that population in feeling or in actuality. And they bring with them their own culture and also they bring with them their own, well, it sort of, it stems from the people. They, they bring with them their own people. They, they, uh, they don't assimilate and they, they form their own uh, ethnic enclaves and, and communities. That's not something to really uh, fault them for. It's a natural instinct for every people, but that should also be extended. That charity should also be extended to Anglo-Celtic European Australians who have an interest in preserving their own community within this country. Let's see, um, demographics of destiny and that, that argument um, flows through to the, the economics arena as well. Because uh, typically when when people are looking at immigration and the impact on the economy, the, the models are pretty preordained. So there's a big model with a, a lazy assumption at the heart of it that is that none of our institutions change as a result of immigration. Therefore, they have a there's a big production function, you stick more labor and capital in that production function and the economy just uh, becomes larger. And therefore you get all these reports with large big numbers in them that tell a happy story while missing out on um, some of these uh, bigger picture issues, which are quite contentious. Look, um, it's it's an issue of culture and people, people can assimilate. And I met a whole bunch of uh, second, second third generation Chinese and Indians who seem like they're um, not too different from ourselves. I mean, they may have a bit of a chip on their shoulder about some uh, unpleasant uh, experiences they had in schoolyards when they were a kid, but um, 
It's it, it's a live issue, and when you have immigration on the sort of scale you have in the states, and it leads to that marked political polarization, whereby the Republican parties just become a a party of uh, uh, the white middle class to some extent, and, and people are polarizing on on the basis of uh, race and identity with new immigrants. Uh, Blacks and Hispanics on the Democratic side, it, and I think that's fundamentally what's driving America's cold civil war at the moment, and some of the uh, sort of bitterness of the cancel culture and politics of personal destruction. Because I, I know in the in the course of my lifetime, uh, free speech when I was a kid seemed pretty robust, and that's just just changed markedly in the space of twenty five odd years. So the f the fact you can be dismissed from a job for something you said on a weekend is just terrifying. And human resources departments, they think they're justified in doing this. And there's always some single middle-aged woman who's bitter and unpleasant. And, that, and the left think it's funny to try and get people fired and get people kicked out of their jobs. Yeah, we see in America recently this growing sense of white identity and whites as a political and a political block. Do you see that coming to Australia with increased? Oh, yeah. Well, how could it not? I mean, people are being targeted uh, on the basis of their race and their gender. So let's say if you're a white male in their 20, in your 20s, you're probably maybe 40% cancelled already. So, I mean, you see this quite acutely with the economics profession. 90% uh, of the students who do the honours year, which is basically the stream into the the, the uh, supply into the pool of economists. 90% of them are, are male, but you turn on the television and look, 50% of the economists you see on TV are female. So there's an, there's an active program to uh, put women in front of the camera without realizing that um, you're doing a massive disservice to the people who've done the hard yards at uh, in the economics faculty, they've got the they've got the degrees, they've got the master's degrees, and uh, simply because of their gender and a company wanting to uh, hit a sort of parity on representation with it, while completely ignoring the fact the supply side's ninety percent male. So it's just the 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 program is. Uh, it's in place, and I w I'm not surprised that people react to it and are, are radicalized by it. I think there are, there are more productive ways of channeling it than uh, uh, some of the people in the States are suggesting, um, but it's just, it's just so hard to broach these issues. And, and discussing intelligently answers, answers in dark corners of the internet. So. Well, maybe it's uh, worth you jumping into how you got cancelled, uh, what the reason was, the story behind that, um, just to give the audience some familiarity with how close to home this experience is for them. So, as you being an Australian experiencing this, we see it all the time with big Americans, uh, celebrities, internet personalities, etc. But uh, it happened to you as well. So I couldn't make up what was happening to me. It just was in subsidies from 2014 to 2030. I had, I had the left come after me in a range of different uh, uh, attacks over a period of about 
six months while I was at the Chamber of Commerce and Industry and was the uh pieces they can membership. What what they what they did, the uh the Clean Energy Council was they doxed me. So they somehow they found a way into my Facebook account, ransacked about twelve to eighteen months worth of material, found anything they could use to uh cast me in a negative light. And I uh, sent that to six members of the Canberra Press Gallery and copied in the CEO at the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And it was front page news for 48 hours. It's just uh, $38 billion versus some, a, a couple of tongue-in-cheek remarks amongst friends in private, and uh, which gets saturation media coverage. The, uh, just, uh, and the spinelessness of the... Um, the organization I was working for, I think it's a lesson in this, do not work for anyone you can't trust. Because uh, at the end of the day, these are the people who ultimately, uh, they'll either back in behind you. I think uh, there's no question Peter Anderson, former CEO, good guy, very solid, great values. He would have seen it for what it is. It's dirty draw, um, took a different view of people they are out to destroy on a personal level and they'll use anything. And we've seen this more recently in Australia at the uh, recent New South Wales election. Um, so I'm not sure if you want to go into that at all. Well, maybe just recount it briefly. Uh, it was, that's to do with Mins and his, uh, his supposed uh, dress-up costume as uh, a member of the National Socialist Party in Germany. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, look, uh, I won't go into Perite, but there, there were two young guys put their hands up to run for the libs in uh, no no wins, like safe labor seats. So effectively, they're doing a, the party a favor by putting their name on the ballot, uh, running, and helping the party to pick up the uh, the public funding. And a journalist at the uh, I think at the Daily Telegraph. Went away, ransacked about um, five years' worth of his social posts just to, just to try and find anything he could use to uh, to smear him. And the guy was a conservative Catholic, so I think he uh, I think he described homosexuality as a perverted Catholic, and that was enough to um, write these hit pieces about him. The hit pieces. Uh, ran across a whole bunch of different media. The Liberal Party freaked out. They disendorsed him. And I think it, it probably impacted his uh, employment as well. So uh, that, that was just Liberal Party. And, and meanwhile, Dominic Perrottet is, uh, that's okay. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I wrote this all up for Quadrant. People now have a look at it. Um, that I just described the uh, Liberal Party as principle-free and spineless to a fault. Because, I mean, if, if the standard is that bad and it's going to go nowhere near politics, and increasingly you get, uh, you struggle to find candidates, you struggle to find high-quality candidates because uh, politics is basically career suicide. And if you're, you're having your own party uh, quite comfortable, being quite comfortable with having your uh, political career talk. I'm beyond despair at this point. That's why I'm a member of the 
uh, Libertarian Party, they have a strong in principle commitment to free speech and a lot of the, the members, a lot of the, um, some of the candidates have actually have been through cancellation themselves. Your story reminds me a lot of that um, episode we had with Barclay McGain. He, you know, a young fellow from Queensland, yeah, he goes with, to a private function with friends, dresses up as Carl Rittenhouse, and that's enough to get the Prime Minister Scott Morrison to disavow him, get kicked out of the party, to get blacklisted, for people who know him to get uh, questioned and, and interrogated by the party. It's just uh, the spineless liberalism. Why, why do you think the Liberals are so spineless, Virgil? Well, politics uh, is about branding, I suppose. The view, if you're Scott Morrison, is, well, this guy's hurting our brand and bringing us into disrepute. I, I don't think he is. I think he's just uh, dressing up and having a bit of a laugh and engaging in free speech, which apparently is what the Liberal Party professes to stand for. Uh, so that that would be the mentality that... Uh, it's just easy to, to get rid of him and the party members and supporters, they're expendable. Uh, so Scott Morrison just com- seems like uh, completely transactional as a prime minister, in addition to holding, what, half a dozen cabinet portfolios. So uh, I don't know, just Scott Morrison for the duration of his time in office and particularly around that Brit- Brittany Higgins issue just seemed to live at the service of the media and if the media run a story about someone that's deemed to be controversial then the liberals will just uh, they'll fold like a cheap suit i mean it so they're never gonna they're never gonna stand on principle and they're the absolute despair of their own supporters which is why they 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 they, they screw them over quite quite badly so the liberal party has a, a real problem with uh it's 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 core supporters just abandoning them and may may not matter too much but if you're trying to man if you're trying to man polls on uh, election day or if you're looking for donations from them then uh, i think the attitude at the moment is well why 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 would i bother and look look at what you've just done to barclay mcgain look at what you've just done to two of your candidates at the New South Wales election, these are young, talented, earnest guys who are serious about politics, and you just trash both of them over trivia because because the press told you to. I mean, who are the press? These are these are barely employable liberal arts graduates. They know nothing about policy. They're not particularly uh, 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 employable outside of journalism, and they're writing these cheap clickbait articles just to get cheap views and they don't care that if they trash people in the process they don't care if they trash our democracy in the process and they don't care that uh, it leads to a real erosion of trust in the media and and trust in the political class because if you can't be a normal human being anymore and still run for parliament then um you're just going to get someone who's highly confected never completely plastic completely scripted and people will turn off to that. I think Donald Trump's appeal was uh, he broke broke through that model and he was authentic. And he had enough um, profile and enough resources to do that. Because once you're nominated for the uh, Republican presidency, it's kind of, you'll, you'll always be there. And because people held the medium in such contempt, 
he was able to raise a huge war chest of small dollar donations who'd see the hit pieces done on him who'd see the uh the attacks by the wall street um journal the uh the washington post and they'd, they'd recognize it for what it is just uh a whole bunch of journalists writing uh, uh unpleasant articles about him because they just didn't like his politics yeah, and well, it really demonstrates the trouble with when you kick out all of the enthusiastic guys um, who are standing based on uh, principles that they believe in. All that you're left with in the end is the people, the careerists, and uh, those who are willing to, uh, no matter what, kowtow to the party. And I think we can put that in contrast with the Labour Party, where, um, say what you want, a lot of their membership is, uh, is full of genuine ideologues who are actually committed to the cause um, not not even for uh, financial purposes or anything like that. And that's why they can sort of go against the narrative on issues such as Israel-Palestine occasionally, um, even when the right won't or when the establishment uh, right won't. And um, I think that uh, we need more of that. I think that brings us in perfectly to the next topic, which is your involvement with the Libertarian Party, Virtual. And obviously this is a party that is based around uh, ideology which is kind of, un- it's pretty unprecedented within Australian politics. Um, and especially to uh, have, uh, you know, withstood the test of time to some degree. A lot of uh, parties that uh, are concocted around ideas do fall apart pretty quickly, especially with these minor parties. But the Libertarian Party seems to be a stay- uh, mainstay now. Um, uh, say what you want. I'm not a Libertarian. I don't think Matthew is. And... Um, and I believe that you describe yourself as a paleo-libertarian, um, which is a little bit of a variation. But I think that um, there is space for all sides of the right to work together on this. It's demonstrated by the recent event, uh, well, sorry, the planned event that was recently announced by the Libertarian Party, where it will be working with uh, an identitarian organisation, the British Australian community, which is one of the most professional stand-up nationalist groups that I know of. We've interviewed... Uh, one of the former presidents, Frank Salter, on the podcast before, and he's a really intelligent, bright guy, uh, well-spoken as well. He's got a, a great uh, track record of works that he's produced. Um, so I see a future where should, uh, should we agree on issues such as immigration restriction and, uh, for example, lowering crime and all these things and, uh, and pushing back against the left, I think that uh, the right can unite uh, even... Uh, elements that are nationalists, that are paleoconservative, that are um, non-libertarian or non-liberal at all can unite uh, behind the Libertarian Party in limited instances. What are your thoughts about this, Virtual? Well, the Libertarian Party, for all its faults, is a party of real conviction. These people believe things. They, They believe in their principles and they stand by them. And you just won't get you just won't get that with any of the major parties. Major parties are just completely transactional. Wherever the wind is blowing, that's where they're head. The notion that they can actually try and influence things is probably completely fanciful. Uh, but the Libertarian Party is just solid on uh, issues of freedom of speech, uh, not wanting to uh, inflict uh, mandatory vaccination on people. And John Ruddock's been uh, John Ruddock's been great on all those issues in the time he's been in uh, New South New South Wales uh, Parliament and the New South Wales branch of the party. It's more um, it's more conservative than the the rest of the uh, Libertarian Party. So it, it aligns more with my 
paleo libertarianism so look i favor freedom and everything comes with that look i'm, I'm an economist so it's uh, bread and butter to me that uh, government failure is real markets do deliver uh, on most fronts and the last thing you want is to be uh, subject to the whims of bureaucrats because if there's anyone who's uh, got real problems with accountability it's uh got people working for government who have an infinite budget to destroy you in litigation if you try and go up against them so the uh libertarian party in new south wales i'd say it's more conservative than the rest of the um the rest of the the party across the country and look uh, ross cameron's an arch conservative i think john ruddick's pretty um conservative and i Look, I'd, I'd have a real issue with libertarianism if it started to uh, become overly ideological and fetishize uh, ab privatizing the defense forces or something crazy like open borders. And I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the challenge on the right is an absence of campaign capacity. So the notion you can get these disparate groups on the right to work together, one nation, Clive Palmer, Libertarians, uh, Family First to the extent they still exist, the residual of the um, Australian Conservative movement, the Freedom Movement to the extent that uh, it has any coherence, which I don't think it does. It's just um, it's just hard because we are we do tend to be individuals and highly atomized, uh, whereas the left hang together, they act strategically, and they're well funded. So that's, I think that's a real challenge. Just the, the level of campaign capacity I'm seeing in this country relative to the states is just shockingly bad. So you've got, um, in terms of grassroots groups, you've got Advanced Australia and the Australian Christian Lobby. And, but other than that, it's pretty thin on the ground. No, those aren't, those aren't particularly large uh, organizations by, in terms of their, uh, email list. So I think the Australian Christian Lobby, if I recall correctly, has an email list of about 400,000 members. Advanced Australia might be two, but uh, the guys in the States that uh, I know and work with, they built email lists bigger than this entire country. They, they've marched 60,000 people on Washington, D.C. over vaccine mandates, and they just operate at a different scale because they're operating with different budgets but it's um it's also possible to do that here it's just no one's really no one's really trying at the moment and there's just I, there's just no money money to do it is the first problem so trying to um fundraise is the first priority well i'd like to dive into your plans to change that maybe towards the end of the episode but um just for the moment maybe we'll, we'll talk more about the libertarians do you um do you see prospect of uh, great growth within the party? And what's your experience been with elections and, uh, and uh, vote percentages? Uh, you, you yourself who have uh, run for Bathurst, I believe, in New South Wales. Yeah, look, I'm a, I was a reluctant candidate. Uh, I suppose I got drafted into politics after being doxxed by the Clean Energy Council. So I realise I have a political problem that needs a political solution and no one else is going to do it. It's good to run, to get that experience, to help uh, John Ruddick get elected to the upper house. And as fairly last minute, quixotic campaign, didn't have a lot of time on the ground, necessarily a lot of resources to deploy. So the result was uh, 
not great, but I'm not surprised by it either. And you learn those lessons the hard way just by um, by by running, by finding out what works. And you realize that um, elections, uh, they're all about trust. So people need to know, well, who are you? Can I trust you? And then, well, what are you going to do for them? Uh, but the other thing you realize about policy and politics is it's kind of a black hole for time and resources. So if you want to do it properly, you, you need back your financial backers or you need a large volunteer network. And the process of building both is incredibly important. I don't know that anyone does it uh, well in this country, particularly. Um, fund, fundraising doesn't seem to be uh, something that's done well, as far as I can tell. And as a result, we just have this very thin uh, conservative movement that's not particularly impactful and that leads the political class just to be uh, subject to the dictates of whatever the Canberra Press Gallery is thinking. That's uh, that's a really disturbing prospect because these, these people are no, these people are no, next to nothing about what should be a priority and what shouldn't. Well, yeah, it's definitely uh, a matter of practical resources, uh, money, time, people. But I think it's also uh, the lack of a right-wing movement uh, with all consciousness within this country is also due to the, the weakness ideologically of a lot of our representatives uh, who currently uh, and previously have spoken for conservatism or the Liberal Party or whatever you might call it. Um, it really, all the energy has gone out of it as it's become more and more watered down in order to fit within the Overton window. Um, it's really going to take a completely different uh, mindset altogether, a completely different kind of right wing to recapture uh, the energy that would be needed to transform this country, I believe. And um, that's not going to come out of the the uh, ideologies of the past. I think that's going to come out of a strident Australian uh, nation, nationalism that asserts itself boldly, that's not ashamed of our history. And I also think that's going to come from uh, a radical Christianity in that uh, we're going to, we have to reassert our moral claims, our theological claims, and uh, also, once again, not back down on this. Uh, I think the fusion of these two could see um, a new, uh, I'll say, rabid right wing rising. And, um, and we could uh, make some moves on uh, getting involved in politics and turning our country around. What, what do you see, uh, Birchall and Matthew as well, if you want to jump in? Oh, well, look at, uh, look at Brexit. Look at Trump. Look at uh, rising nationalist forces uh, globally. The elections in uh, Germany at the moment, uh, Holland uh, late last year. This this is really terrifying our elites. They know that uh, they know that um, the electorates lost trust, and that loss of trust is justified. And they're finding they're finding alternatives, and they've found it in these um, nationalist parties on the right in Europe, in Donald Trump, in terms of the uh, MAGA movement. And everything that entails and it's it's only these guys who are doing the heavy lifting it's only these guys who are asking the, the difficult questions and you, you see that in australia with the libertarians none of the serious questions of the labor party are being asked by the, the liberals it's uh it's it's down to a handful of people in parliament and maybe you've got um a couple of people on the, the right in the liberal party or the nats who are kind of okay like canavan or uh, antic but um for the most part, it, it comes from outside of the uh, major political parties. And I think um, 
there's there's a real real potential there. It's just trying to, I suppose, find find the financial backers to uh, to back that movement, and also training the candidates and bringing the um, campaign expertise up to up to speak. Because I think the when you look at Australian politics, you just realise the hardest any politician works is to get pre-selected for a safe seat. So they don't necessarily know how to campaign. They don't know how to fundraise. They certainly know how to stack a branch so they can get into parliament. Yeah, but the problem is uh, once they're there, they're, there, they're kind of um, at the whims of the, the media and uh, completely subservient to them. If they're ambitious and the prime minister doesn't want to take stand on an issue, then what chance, chance do you have? If they can take out Christian Porter, for instance, on an allegation from 40 odd years ago, that looked completely sketchy from a dead, dead woman with psychiatric issues and Morrison will happily throw him under the bus, as will whoever was um, uh, bankrolling Porter's uh, lawsuit, then, I mean, what hope do the rest of us have inside the, the major political place? Absolutely none. None would be my view. And that's why I've, uh, why I've ultimately ended up um, as a libertarian as and as a libertarian candidate and as someone who wants to build this movement and see it thrive. Because we're, we're lagging behind at this point. Uh, One Nation's been around for a while, whether they've been effective or not, uh, probably not. And it's just a function of um, they don't have better campaign expertise and no one's no one's built the movement yet. It's, it's really it's really dispiriting. Yeah, uh, you've been talking a lot about the, the lack of a coherent right wing uh, movement in Australia compared to America and Europe at large. As I understand, you have a training program um, to rectify this. Uh, can you just, uh, to the audience, describe what it is and how they can get involved? Yeah. Well, so I looked at the, um, I looked at the what what can you do that's relatively low cost but a bit high impact. And I thought, well, probably the key thing you can do is either fundraising or uh, candidate training. So across the eastern seaboard this year we've got local council elections in queensland in march in new south wales in september and in victoria in october so i thought uh, well why not uh, why not offer a campaign boot camp to tailored to local council races because local council pretty easy lift uh low cost low risk once you get onto local council that gives you profile in the community you can leverage up to something else so I sat down with my uh, friends in DC. We nutted out a, a two-day intensive program, and we're going to be offering this. Um, initially, we had proposed to do it in person, but we're switching to uh, video instruction for the American-led sessions. So it's a two-day program for 150 bucks in early February, the third and the fourth in Sydney and Glebe, and then the seventh, sorry, the um, the 10th and the 11th, the subsequent weekend again in Glebe. So taking people through what they need to know in order to run, a friend of mine who's a uh, quite an accomplished lawyer is gonna be uh, taking care of the defamation and electoral law matters, which is uh, great. And look, the, the in-kind support we've had for putting on this program has been extraordinary. So they've got uh, access to a very nice venue, 
and there's even a Tridentine Mass on the Sunday morning for the faithful who are interested uh, in coming along for that. It's kind of a, it's a comprehensive program of everything you need to know to get you to be able to fundraise properly, campaign properly, do your opposition research. And I don't know that too, bit, too many people know what that term means in this country because uh, it's just the campaign. Uh, no one gets trained here as far as I can tell. So do your opposition research on the opponent, um, how to run digital media, how to run a, an email campaign. So um, the details are online. I think you guys might post it for me uh, after we get off. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'll link to it as well. So if, if you want to, if they're about 10 years ahead of us in terms of campaign strategy and tactics in the States, and I'll acknowledge there is a difference in terms of the, the budgets involved in running a campaign in the States. But the great thing about that is uh, because most of the money in Australian politics is um, public money from the electoral funding, you don't, you don't need big money to run it. And at a local council level, it's it's actually quite civil and constructive. There's not the same sort of politics and personal destruction that you'll find at state or federal. And if you run as an independent, you don't have to worry about your own party sticking a knife in you and uh, turfing your side. So it's got great practice for running for office. Uh, once you get on council, that's also great practice for being in office. And I'm just... Uh, it's a real passion project for me because I see I see the need for something like this, and the closest we've come, I think, was the uh, campaign boot camp that was attached to CPAC in 2019. So that's CPAC Australia. Uh, some guys came over from the states, and it was it was nowhere near as tailored as this one, but you could see people were mes mesmerized by what they were learning because they'd, they'd never heard any of this stuff before. So I think there's a, there's a real problem with Australian politicians that they have the uh, Sir, Sir Galahad approach to public policy that they'll just um, they'll stroll in and they'll make the argument and then naturally the whole world will fall into place and no no it's uh, it's a huge logistical exercise of uh, how letterbox drops uh, networking yourself into the community, meeting people, talking to people, making phone calls, doing media. So there's a session on uh, media training in the course. And um, once you realize that you've got a certain vote objective, you work back from that and think, well, how, how many how many houses do I, how many doors do I need to knock? How many digital touches do I need? What sort of advertising budget do I need for social media to get those digital touches to do, you know, win those votes? So I think, and, and I found this as well, as soon as you become a candidate, the first thing that happens is uh, you lose about 30 IQ points and the whole game plan goes out the window and you just become completely reactive. So uh, the objective of this, uh, these two, Two-day um, training sessions are it's a complete guide to how to run for office for local council. It's pitched at local council because that's where the next uh, election is. But all this stuff translates to both state and federal and the principles you'll learn and the skills you'll learn translate. It's just that uh, the budgets won't necessarily. And uh, it's, um, 
yeah, the things are a bit more risk averse at the um, state and federal level. But in terms of the uh, in terms of the actual content of the program, we cover off uh, research, fundraising fundamentals, recruiting volunteers, campaign infrastructure in terms of your website, how you can use it, integrate it with social media, the legal fundamentals, uh, campaign planning. Uh, give uh, an update on my experience as a candidate for Bathurst and the lessons I took from that, which I think it's easy to learn the lessons from someone else. So it's high cost to do it yourself, but if, if you uh, learn these lessons from someone else, that's cheaper. The other way you can learn is just be, uh, don't run yourself, but um, work as a campaign manager or high level volunteer on someone else's campaign and uh, get sort of insights from what goes on and the closer you are to the candidate and the campaign, the, uh, the greater the insights and the greater the lessons. So, no, no, second day uh, rounds out with uh, digital strategy fundamentals, the role of local government, uh, branding, media training, and then we wind up for a drink somewhere, presumably. Well, I just wanted to say uh, we talk a lot about how we transform our ideas into actual uh, tangible impact upon politics and upon Australia. And this seems like uh, one of the best ways that I've heard of doing it. It sounds like it really gives you uh, beneficial skills that will be able to be transferred, that can't be taken away from you, and that will put you in a better place to move, to ascend through the parties, through the institutions. Um, and uh, it's all for a great deal. So I would recommend everyone to go check out uh, Virtual's program. I highly recommend it. Just based on the description alone, it sounds like it's a uh, great value and very important that our movement gets skilled up in this way. This will put us uh, years ahead. Uh, maybe not, I don't know yeah. about years, but it'll put us leaps and bounds ahead of where we are at the moment in terms of professionalism, in terms of what we can offer, um, in terms of what we can bring to the table. Should uh, any political party wish to bring us on board and, uh, and, and with us, our ideas, hopefully. And um, just to touch onto that. Well, just real quick, I, I do have some yeah. uh, sponsorship money for a discounted student rate. So uh, the ticket price is going to be 150 for the two days. And if you're a student, I can I can take that down to uh, 75 using some of the funding I have. So people do care. That's people that's a good deal. Them. That's a good deal. Yeah, and this is a, these are American level insights, hmm. and you'll just get a completely different perspective on politics and you kind of you get a deeper insight into what's going on exactly so that that that's kind of reason enough to do it alone because uh, if you're looking at policy politics from the outside uh you don't really get a sense of what's driving it but uh once you understand uh, the importance of all these various facets and the unfortunately the um the devil of the media and how to deal with it then uh you, you'll understand politics on a, on a deeper level and you can ultimately have more impact. And this program would be a perfect opportunity for all of young men across this country with similar ideas to meet, to network, to make connections and to gain knowledge and to build a, an infrastructure that can challenge the establishment. Yeah, because um, I, think, I think the thing that's that's hard in this country is fundraising. So if you, if you can raise $5,000 from someone, you're actually doing pretty well. But uh, in order to do that, you have to have, you have to be able to convince that donor that you can do something productive with it. And if you've been trained and you've got a uh, 
got a plan that you can put in front of them and be accountable to them and they see the results then that's how you that's how you get the next donation and that's how you get the uh not just from that donor but from the the, the guy the, the all the donors friends and uh anyone who wants to have an impact because there's, there's, there's a huge appetite at the moment that um is just a, a dearth of activity because it i just get the impression no one knows what they should be doing yeah, well, uh, thank you for putting yourself at the forefront of this effort and, and to uh, to really take the initiative to train people up. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you for joining us uh, virtual this week. Uh, where can everyone find your social media and all your uh, your links and everything like that? Well, Elon Musk has done us all a great favor and made uh, Twitter a free speech forum. So I've taken full advantage of that. And when I think there's an issue that's not being... Uh, Broached properly, I'm, I'm usually uh, weighing in on Twitter. Whether or not I should do that, I don't know, but um, uh, quite comfortable doing it because it's the right thing to do, as is this uh, boot camp. Because um, t- until we lift the side, I think we're always going to struggle. And uh, it'd just be a great opportunity for people to come along, network with other like minded individuals, and learn some really powerful uh, skill sets and insights. Because um, once we do that, we can. Uh, start building something all right thank you for joining me virtual thank you for joining me matthew as well and everyone who is listening make sure you go follow the national uh, sorry nationalobserver.substack.com and that's where you can find all of our content written articles this is the second podcast that we put out this week um and that we put out the second podcast instead of an article there's going to be a very big episode dropping on monday Uh, next Monday make sure that you tune in make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and uh, without further ado happy Australia Day and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week thank you cheerio thanks John